Radio. I'm your host and the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay, and I'm so thrilled that you're with us today. We're going to have a fascinating conversation about brain health as you age, and that is such a, an important topic. Um, if you haven't subscribed to the show, I would suggest that you do that because you're going to learn um, new tips and techniques and resources to help you or someone you know live graciously alongside dementia. My mom herself lived with it for 30 years, so I get it as a daughter. I get the guilt, the isolation, the frustration, the exhaustion of caring for another. But I've also been able to find that path of joy and purpose and passion. So listen in today, and I know we will be able to help you. Alzheimer's Speaks is also known as a media outlet because we help companies expand their brand footprint by leveraging our content and our tools and our platforms so that more people can find out about their products, products, services, and tools. And to our listeners, I have to say thank you for your loyalty. Your likes, your clicks, and shares have, have spread the knowledge that we share here in raising all voices around the world. And I can't thank you enough for that. So I hope you'll continue to push uh, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio out uh, to Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and, and all the different spheres that you're connected to because that's how we build a sense of community and collaboration and give people comfort and needed information and resources. Now, you can also call in on our live shows, and today, of course, is a live show, and I'm so excited to have uh, Jody Lyons with us today. Um, The call-in number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602, and if I see you there, I'll pull you into the conversation Now, before I introduce Jody, I want to give a shout out to a few different organizations. One is Stall Catchers. Um, I I was just talking with Pietro today um, about Stall Catchers, which is a game we can play that actually analyzes real live Alzheimer's research. So go to stallcatchers.com. And um, sign up, and uh, you can you can play this game and uh, analyze real research. Some people do it in teams and get competitive. There's all different ways, but go to stallcatchers.com to find out more information. I always like to give a shout out to the memorycafedirectory.com as well. They have a list of, um, gosh, oh, well over 700 memory cafes now in the U.S., and they are also building lists in other countries. So if you're looking for a support group for people with dementia and their care partners where they can attend together, the Memory Cafe is the perfect solution to that. So check that out. Or maybe you have a Memory Cafe, but you're not part of the directory. There's no charge. 
So just go there and you'll be able to contact Dave and he will he will get you up and running. The other thing is the um, Alzheimer's Disease International just finished their 2019 World Report and that went um, went out. So you can go to Alzheimer's Disease International. You can just Google them, or you can go to my website as well, alzheimerspeaks.com. Just don't go there today because we're migrating the site. (laughs) It might show up that it's down, but it will be back up and running. But I do have a link on our homepage to that, as well as the um, World Dementia Council is doing a survey And they want to find out what's working in dementia-friendly communities. And if you have any data or research to go with it, that would be lovely. But they've extended the survey to the end of October now. So check check them out. I'm I'm really excited to to see what's going on there. And then last, I want to give a shout-out to Artist Senior Living. Um, They just hosted me here in Minnesota, which was just a blast to speak to a professional group and to families. And then I'm going to be going out to New Jersey to Artist Senior Living of Brick, October 8th. So if you're out and about, um, check us out. Come on in. I'd love to meet you. I will be at Artist Senior Living of Elmhurst, October 16th and 17th. Then I'll be back in Minnesota October 19th in Deep Haven Woods of Minnetonka is sponsoring a screening of A Timeless Love, and I'll be showing that. Um, That'll actually be at the Presbyterian Church in Minnetonka. And then in uh, November 13th through the 15th, I will be out in uh, Reading and Lexington, Massachusetts, again with Artist Senior Living doing both professional and um, family education. And then in the end of November, the 20th through the 23rd, I will be with Alabama Cares, their East Alabama area on uh, agency on aging. So I'm really looking forward to, to all of those. And I would love to meet you if you happen to be in the area. Now, many of us have uh, spent time looking for our reading glasses when they're on top of our heads. I know I have actually done that when I've had two pair on top of my my head. Um, or we've walked into a room and we've forgotten, you know, why did I walk in here? What am I, what am I doing? And most people, even young people, um, have had these experiences where you just, you know, you've got a concern because you've, you've lost track of something. So today we're going to talk about some normal signs of aging and what you can do to maintain your brain health. And there's this great new book called Brain Health As You Age, and it is a practical guide to maintenance and prevention. And there are three authors, and we are so lucky to have Jody L. Lyons with us, who is one of the co-authors of the book. And it's um, it's really quite a brilliant book. It covers a lot of great information. So Jody, for those of you who don't know her, she's an elder care expert who helps older adults and those with special needs find the care they need throughout the country and what a needed source that is. In addition to being the co-author of The Brain Health As You Age, uh, The Practical Guide to Maintenance and Prevention, she also wrote an award-winning book called the Smart Person's Guide to Elder Care. So she really knows this space. She's a, 
uh, a graduate um, of Brandeis University, and she was the on the executive committee of the Alzheimer's Association, the national capital ch- uh, area chapter, and also the Alzheimer's Association ambassador on Capitol Hill. So, like I said, uh, Jody really knows what it is she is talking about. And I can't wait to get her online. And for whatever reason, I can't unmute her with the system. So, Joni, I'm going to have you call back in, and we're going to try this again. Sure. Uh, oh, wait, you're there. You're there. Okay, okay, good. Yep, it just beeped. I heard it. Hi, everybody. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us. And I will just, I guess, ignore my my studio board here because it says you're muted and you're not. <laughs> I am here, so thank you very much for that great introduction. I'm really happy to be here, Lori. Yeah, I am. I'm thrilled to have you have you with us. Um, I, I think the book that you wrote is just um, a wonderful, wonderful resource for people. But before we dive into that, I want to ask you it, because it's always nice for our audience to know if you have been touched in your own family or circle of friends by any form of dementia. Well, the answer to that is yes. Um, I've been an elder care consultant for decades, and at this point, 100% of my clients have some form of cognitive impairment, usually mixed dementias or is some of the more challenging ones with behaviors. But the hardest part is when, you know, I'm now getting to an age where I have friends who have younger onset Alzheimer's or my parents' friends have Alzheimer's. And seeing not just the medical aspect of things, but the financial aspect, how it financially devastates families, and probably even worse than that, how it tears apart families and the social structure. So my personal experience is both professional and personal, and I think the hardest part is seeing the caregivers become so very isolated and lonely because friends disappear. Yeah, that's a that's a huge huge issue, and isolation isn't good for any of us at any no. age. You know, it's it's one thing if we're pulling ourselves back and and we need some solace for a period of time, but when you feel isolated, there's usually, in my opinion, there's usually a sense of abandonment that's tied in with that, and and that just that, is absolutely. Not a, and now you know the new studies are showing that social isolation is actually one of the risk factors for developing dementia. And here we are, you know, causing problems in caregivers. Yeah. And I'm so glad that study came out since, you know, my, like I mentioned um, in the intro, my mom had dementia for 30 years. And to me, my mom lived as long as she did because she stayed socially connected. To me, that was the one factor, you know, she continued to feel purposeful and connected. Absolutely, it's huge. Well, let's talk. Let's talk about this book, um, Brain Health as the Age. Why did you decide to write it, and and how did you hook up with your co-authors? Those are great questions. So the flippant answer is, um, when your agent calls and says, "Do you feel like writing a book on brain health?" You say, "Sure." But the reason the book turned out the way it did was that I I and the two co-authors have worked together for years. Dr. Bill Manspock is CEO of the BCAT, the Brief Cognitive Assessment Tools, 
and also um, with a program called Enrich Visits, E-N-R-I-C-H, Visits, for more consumer-facing material. And he's an absolute expert, world-renowned in dementia, behaviors, scientifically validating tools, etc. And Dr. Steve Simmons is a house call physician. And so the three of us have worked together, and Dr. Simmons is phenomenal, goes into people's houses and really gets to the bottom of things. Um, I actually sometimes say he's like a dog with a bone, but occasionally the dog will put the bone down to get a drink of water, and, well, he won't. (laughs) But what the three of us were seeing was that there's a lot of hidden dementia. It's people who were homebound and couldn't get out of their houses to go get diagnosed, or they were living in their house with nobody around. I, I remember one case where we had a very elderly client, and the only reason that anybody found them was their neighbor had been going to get them groceries, and the neighbor went off to college. And apparently one of the elderly people was able to call 911 because she thought she was being kidnapped. And the police went in and found them late in their late 90s, no family, with no food, no medicine, no anything, because their only support system was a child in the neighborhood who, out of the goodness of his heart, would go get them groceries. And so the three of us realized that there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of lack of information, and a lot of material that wasn't understandable and scientifically validated. And we wanted to spread the message, and a book was a perfect way to do it. So now we do the book and speaking engagements and try to get the message out that you, you as a consumer, you as a neighbor, a person living in society, kind of need to keep your eyes open to make sure that the people around you are okay. Not everybody has family. That's so true. That's so true. I mean, even if the person with dementia, people, everybody thinks everyone's married. Everyone's got yeah. a partner. Every, everyone's yeah. got someone looking over them. That That is not true. There are a lot of people that are alone in this world. And, um, you know, and none of us should should live alone. And, and as a community, I think we need to become much more connective and, and integrative. And we've, really, we've lost sight of that so much. Yes, compared absolutely. To, I, and one of the other issues is, that a lot of primary care physicians get an average of 8 to 11 minutes with their patient. And if the patient is not capable of truly articulating what the problems are, you go through the normal vitals, you know, you take blood pressure, temperature, et cetera, and we really need to look at cognition as a vital sign. And people are not getting even at a moment where there could be interference and intervention, people are not getting diagnosed. And so part of the reason we wrote this book was to also to educate primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, anybody who's dealing with older adults to make sure that they're aware of what they need to look at, what's normal and what's not normal aging. Yeah, because, because a lot of our medical professionals don't know. And, and, you know, we grew up in an era where, you know, those professionals are supposed to have all the answers. Well, it's very complicated. 
And um, this really is a fairly new disease compared to many others out there. And there's so much that we need to learn as consumers and as professionals, um, you know, to be able to do a better job to really serve the populations well. Let's talk a little bit because not everybody understands the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia. Why don't we start there? Sure. And, and that's a great question. I use the word dementia generically, as I think most professionals do. Dementia is an umbrella term for a cluster of symptoms, kind of like when you say, oh, they have flu-like symptoms. It doesn't mean they have the flu. It means they have the symptoms of. So with dementia, there are certain symptoms you can expect. There can be memory loss. There can be... Um, behavioral changes, mood changes, etc. So dementia is actually a clinical syndrome. They say that you can really find the characteristics really are um, decline in memory. So we all know that the forgetfulness, short-term memory loss, etc. Executive functions, which is things like judgment, language, and other cognitive skills. And so those affect a person's ability every day. But that's dementia, the umbrella term. Some of the types of dementia are Alzheimer's disease being the most common. So Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. Then there are a bunch of other types of dementia. I'll just give a list of a couple of them. As we say, it's not always Alzheimer's. So Alzheimer's is the most common, as I said. There's early onset Alzheimer's disease, sometimes referred to as young onset Alzheimer's, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's disease dementia, frontotemporal dementia, used to be called PICS disease and is sometimes abbreviated FTD, not to be confused with the florist, uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, mixed dementia, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is one of the newer identified ones, which is, um, you probably saw the movie Concussion. It's repeated Mm -hmm. head injury. And then there are a few others that they're starting to identify, such as one which is called dementia with Parkinsonism. It doesn't really have the Parkinson's disease biomarker, and it doesn't have the Alzheimer's disease biomarker, but you get the symptoms of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So, again, dementia is the umbrella term. Alzheimer's is one type of dementia. Great. Thank you. I think that I think a lot of people get confused by that. I, I go around and speak and train, too, and I'm shocked how many people don't understand the difference. You know, it's kind of like we use the term cancer, but there's all different types of cancers. Dementia, there's all different types of dementias with different names, yeah. just like there are for cancer. Um, yes, so, and different yeah. sim- symptoms and different behaviors within the disease and different life expectancies. It's almost a yeah. misnomer to call them all dementia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it, it's, well, and there, there's so little known on, on so many levels with all this stuff. I mean, and, and some of the terms have changed. I mean, I remember when a bunch of people were told they had Alzheimer's and then all of a sudden they got reco- recategorized as mild cognitive 
impairment. Yeah. And I, re- I remember them going, there's nothing mild about this. <laughs> my that symptoms, have, you my that symptoms have not changed. <laughs> I, I get mad every time I hear the word mild. I don't know who came up to call it mild. Because if it's enough of a problem that you've actually reached the MCI or mild cognitive impairment stage, it's not mild. Exactly. Exactly. It might be mild in terms of what's to come, but it definitely is impacting your life and your lifestyle. Exactly. And, And the other thing that makes me quite upset is the, well, she's old, so that must just be normal aging. Yep. And there's a big difference between normal aging and dementia, as you know. Uh, One of the things I always say is, you know, people say, oh, I walked in the room and forgot while I was there. Okay, we all do that, and I, too, have had the reading glasses on the top of my head, or better yet, the cell phone in my hand looking for the cell phone. (laughs) But there, there are certain things. It is true that your brain will slow down as you get older. But there are some things that are just normal, like when you're in your car and you're driving to the grocery store and you know you need three things, and then you answer the phone on the way and drive past the exit to the grocery store, and then when you get there, can't remember those three things. And what we always say is, first think of miss and or inattention. Before you start thinking about whether you have Alzheimer's or dementia, are you distracted? And by the way, you probably shouldn't be on the phone while you're driving anyway. But it's normal for that to happen. It's not normal if it's really affecting your daily life and your ability to function. And so if there is somebody who is saying to a doctor or a friend or somebody else, hey, I think something's wrong, I'm forgetting things, or my judgment is off, that's one of the first clues you need to look at something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they could be 85 and sharp as a tack or 85 and not sharp and you can't just say well they're 85 and let that be the answer exactly exactly yeah it's um it's an interesting process um in terms of diagnosing and in terms of when do you go in i, I remember when my when i was 13 so that was many years ago because i'm 60 now um, but when I was 13, my aunt had dementia, but they didn't call it that. They called it senility, and mm-hmm. and really it was just, it, and I was told this is just what happens when you get old. And I remember screaming out in pain. I was so devastated when she didn't know who I was, but she knew my little brother who really didn't care much about her. <laughs> you know, and oh. I was so I was so personally offended by that. And I remember saying, I don't ever want anyone to feel that kind of pain. You know, Absolutely. that disconnect. Absolutely. And, it, it, and, you know, you raised the point about when do you go in. I, I know I challenge my two co-authors. Again, they're both doctors. Um, I challenge them because I will say in public all the time, and I'm here I am saying it on your radio show, if you think you might maybe be possibly having a problem, please don't go to your doctor first. Go to your financial advisor go to your attorney and get all your ducks in a row and then start going through the process of getting a diagnosis. And the reason I say this is you need to get your powers of attorney in place. You need to get your advanced directives in place. You need to get your financial house in order. 
And if you start the diagnosis path without doing those other things, it becomes much too easy to get caught in the perpetual doctor's appointments without getting your power of attorney taken care of. Yeah. Well, and you you might want to look into long-term um, health insurance as well. Yes. You know, because yes, exactly. once you've got that diagnosis, that's not going to happen. And exactly. I know that there's... And there are so many new products out there in the long-term care insurance company uh, world. You mm-hmm. know, they have hybrid policies that are long-term care insurance and life insurance. They have straight long-term care insurance. It's really worth putting your team together and having that discussion before you get the diagnosis and can't get any of those products. You're absolutely right. Yep. And I know I have heard a few people say, well, my doctor said he's not going to write it in the chart yet. He's going to give me a month, but you can't, you know, you, you can't guarantee that. Um, right. Especially with everything being so electronic these days, it's just, um, and it, you know, and it's also, it's a, just a good, it's a smart way to live, to have those documents in place. I, I firmly believe we should all have them when we're 18 years old. And, Absolutely. Um, but we're so afraid that being prepared brings us to the end of life. And, you know, none of us know when we're, when we're going to be released from this world. <laughs> And what well, exactly, like. and you don't know what's going to happen today or tomorrow. It doesn't have to be Alzheimer's. Exactly. Yeah, it might be someone's dehydrated or has mixed medications, that you know, or a vitamin deficiency, something that can be corrected and changed. And uh, many people don't understand that some of this stuff can be reversible. And well, that's um, a great point. That's the delirium versus dementia debate. And... One of the things I always say to Dr. Simmons, one of my co-authors, is I say, I need you to clean that person up before we start worrying about any cognitive screening. Please look Mm -hmm. at dehydration. Look at medication mismanagement, malnutrition, a lack of sleep, sleep apnea, any of these things. Let's eliminate all of the likely things. Uh, people taking over-the-counter drugs or supplements and mixing them with prescriptions and not telling their doctor. Some of the drugs on their own can actually cause delirium-type symptoms. Clear it up, then worry about whether it's actually dementia because there's all sorts of things you can do to protect yourself. Exactly, exactly. Now, is there any way um, to mitigate the risk of potentially getting, you know, Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia? That's a great question. So you know that we say what is the main cause of getting dementia? Having a brain. We know that. But there are some healthy habits you can do to mitigate your risks. And I'll give a quick overview now. If you want more information, um, your listeners can go to enrichvisits.com, E-N-R-I-C-H, visits, V-I-S-I-T-S.com. That's one of Dr. Mansbach's sites. And so we talk about in the book the six brain healthy habits of Enrich. There are more, but we like the acronym, and it's easy to remember. So E is exercise daily, and that means physical aerobic activity. And as Dr. Mansbach always says, if you can carry on a normal conversation with the person next to you while you're exercising, you're not exercising hard enough. 
And if you can't talk at all, you're exercising too hard. So moderate physical aerobic activity daily. The N is no smoking. And all of us who preach the no smoking tell people it is never too late to stop. R is routinely add cognitive stimulation that is challenging and progressive. Now, this is the Jody editorial, which is make sure that what you're doing is scientifically validated. You don't need to waste your time. If it is fun, that's terrific. Uh, There are people who do crossword puzzles, and some get progressively harder. That's great. But if you can always do it and it's easy, that means it's not hard enough. Um, I is improve mood, meaning fight and treat depression. Studies are showing that untreated, undiagnosed, low-grade depression over a long period of time actually is one of the trigger factors for various dementias. So absolutely improve mood, and that means fighting and treating depression. And I will also say anxiety. Treat Mm -hmm. mental health the same way you treat anything physical. You wouldn't walk around on a broken leg. Go deal with the anxiety, depression, et cetera. The C of enrich is control hypertension and heart rate. That means take your, your heart medications and your blood pressure medications. If you need to change your diet to control your hypertension, you need to do it. And then finally the H is healthy weight and body fats. And what that means is healthy. doesn't mean skinny, but it does mean healthy. So that's Enrich, E-N-R-I-C-H. We have a lot more detail about it in the book, and you can also go to our website, which is brainhealthasyouage.com or enrichvisitswithanssattheend.com. Okay, great. I have a question for you on the improved mood. You talked about, you know, fighting and treating depression and anxiety. And I guess I just want to um, state, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but so often people are diagnosed with depression when it's more than that. Um, I know when my mom was going through that, they're like, oh, she, you know, she's, she's just down. And it's like, no, no, it's, it's not depression with her it was she was purposely withdrawing because she was afraid of making a mistake or embarrassing herself or somebody else that was very conscious um but i i don't know and i've heard many other people say that same thing that they were diagnosed with depression and then three years later they were diagnosed with uh with a form of dementia and they always they never felt that that diagnosis was accurate from the get-go do you What do you hear and see about that? Well, I I think you raise a phenomenal point. It's, It's actually two sides of the same coin. So on the one hand, they know that untreated depression is a risk factor for dementia. But on the other hand, the mood disorders can actually, and the mood changes, can actually be a sign that there's already some sort of a dementia brewing. Mm -hmm. And the mood disorders vary with the different forms of dementia, but it's absolutely something that needs to be taken seriously. And I, I hear Dr. Mansbach's voice in my head right now as we're discussing this, and he says depression is a lethal illness. Mm-hmm. 
The answer is you've got to get it dealt with. So on the one hand, is it a symptom of something else going on in the brain, or Mm -hmm. is it depression in and of itself? Either way, it's got to be dealt with. Yeah. The the other thing that I hear from people, too, and again, this happened to my mom, was it was poo-pooed as her hormones. Oh, Dorothy, you're just going through some changes. Don't even get me started on that one. Yeah. (laughs) She was a woman of a certain age. It must have been her hormones. Yep. 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 Yeah. And um well I, I love I love that acronym. I think it's real easy for people to remember and um and that's a nice way to you know, the simpler the better, you know, to kind of train our brain to, to remember and to be able to apply and to be able to pass it on too, well, I think exactly. is, is really and it has to be one of the things that we had difficulty with in the book was taking all of the information that we knew and boiling it down into something that was actually measurable, implementable, and effective. Mm-hmm. Because nobody's going to sit and eat nothing but kale and boiled water for the rest of their life while exercising three hours a day, having no stress at all, and it's just not realistic. So this Dr. Mansbach did a lot of research behind this, and actually the footnotes and endnotes in our book will show you all the research behind the enrich that he's done, so you can see exactly mm-hmm. why and how it works and where the scientific validation is. Wonderful. Now, are there some practical you know, advice that you can give for people who are dealing with Alzheimer's or another, another form of dementia? Yes, yes. And this, this is usually where I get on my soapbox. And I do hope your listeners know what a soapbox is. Just as an aside, uh, I was talking to some younger people in their teens a few weeks ago, and they had no idea what a soapbox was. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I always focus on the practical aspects as well. I mean, this is a point we don't yet have a cure. So what do you need to know to function? Number one is, The nastier part, there's the disease, which is nasty enough as itself. But Mm -hmm. then you throw in all of the legal and financial aspects, and it starts to get very, very stressful for everybody involved. And the practical part can end up being a crisis even faster than the medical. So, for example, if you don't have powers of attorney, as you said, you need them by the time you're 18, you should have powers of attorney. You want all your legal documents in order. You also need to make sure your financial house is in order, even down to the simplest thing. It's not how much money do you have. But if you were incapacitated and still wanting to live in your house, who knows where your electric bill is or how to pay it? Where are the passwords to your computer? How do you do you do online banking? Well, if you do online banking and you are the only one who knows how to do the online banking and you can't, all of a sudden none of your bills are getting paid. Do people around you, like if you live separated from your family, which most of us do at this point, do any of your neighbors know how to reach your family in an emergency? And then one of the other things is use technology to your advantage. Um, my phone has a medical ID app on it. So, you know, if somebody calls 911, 
it goes to the emergency contacts and alerts them. It lists the medications. One of my neighbors has a key to my house. That sort of thing, because we're not infallible. And so we need to know all of those little practical things that add up to be a very big issue. But then on top of that, it's how do you take care of the caregiver? Because it starts simply, like, and I'm sure you did, had this too, Lori, you start paying the bills for your parents when they can't. And yep. then all of a sudden you're worried about two houses getting the lawn mowed and did the water heater go and all of this. Caregivers are, particularly of people with cognitive impairment, are much more likely to get ill than their counterparts who are caring for somebody else with a different disease. And I'm sure you remember a couple years ago when the Alzheimer's Association did its facts and figures, Medicare had estimated that it was costing Medicare $13,000 a year more to take care of a person caring for someone with Alzheimer's per year Mm -hmm. than for somebody else. It wasn't even taking, it wasn't even the person with Alzheimer's. It was a caregiver. Yep. And so what I say is the biggest practical support thing is making sure there's a support system, a whole system in place. Support the caregiver, support the person with the dementia, support the practical things. And it could be as simple as bringing over a lasagna, but Mm -hmm. don't disappear because somebody's sick. Well, and I think it's interesting, too, is most people don't understand how important that is until the care partner is hospitalized or worse. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And then like, I thought they had it handled. I asked. They said it was okay. They were doing just fine. Yes, and and I always say one of my biggest fears, and I hate when it happens and it happens all too often, is you have a care partner who says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Oh, Mm -hmm. don't worry. I can lift my husband in and out of the shower. His balance is a little off now, but don't worry. I can do it. I don't need any aids. He doesn't want any strangers in the house until you find both of them in the bathroom at where they both. Or grab bars are ugly. I don't want them. And, And so the... It's, and I hate the frog in boiling water analogy, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's, you know, the, the old wives' tale that if you take a frog and you put it in a pan of cool water, you can keep raising the temperature until the frog's dead and it never jumps out of the pan. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about care partners and people with, in particular, people with any of the dementing diseases particularly when the executive function starts to go and their judgment starts to go and the care partner says, well, he said, and they go along with whatever he said. No stranger in the house, I don't need help, all of that. Yeah, that's very true, very, very true. And sometimes it takes a friend to call somebody out on that, you know, saying you're another family member, you're not fine. And you need to ask for help. People want to help, but you can't, uh, somebody can't help you if you don't let them in. Well, exactly. But if you look to when 
you look at the other life transitions we go through, right? Somebody has a baby, the baby goes off to kindergarten, then they go off to high school, then the baby goes off to college. There's support and there's help at every one of those steps. And Mm -hmm. you know what to expect. And everybody says when you have a new baby, oh, here, let me watch the baby, you go lie down and rest. Nobody says it quite that way when you're dealing with somebody older, and older means older than infant. And to your point, they don't say, hey, look, I know you're not okay. I'm coming over and I'm bringing dinner. Yeah, it's it's very true. We have a whole different outlook on caring for our young than we do uh, caring for someone who is who is an adult, and um, and there's a lot of discomfort in that on all different levels. And yet, we all know how wonderful it feels to help somebody out, and yet we push that help away, and we, you know, and 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 so we're we're taking that away from someone else to feel good about helping because you've probably helped somebody else out multiple times and you know it's payback for them they they want to be there for you and yet we have this this societal image that oh oh, that's not a good thing you know absolutely and you know that also extends to the whole discussion with um, elder law attorneys or estate attorneys or financial advisors investment counselors etc they're very quick to say, have you set aside money for your college fund for your kid or your grandkid or your nieces or whatever? They're not so quick to say, okay, so let's say that you do have Alzheimer's, for example, or one of the dementias with behaviors, and it's not safe for you to stay in this particular house you're living in forever. Are you willing to set aside $10,000 a month or $13,000 a month to take care of yourself. And if you do that, how do you take care of your spouse? Or if you're single, what are you doing with the house, etc.? And nobody wants to have that because that's viewed as an unpleasant discussion. Yet, when you have the same conversation about the same amount of money and label it college fund, it's positive and everybody wants to discuss it. Mhm. Yeah, and in those conversations have to be done. I remember when I was in uh, real estate, you know, everybody thought if you moved out of your house, it was the end of life, and it was just like, no. This move is no different than any other move. You're you're just going to move to meet your needs better. You know, we you've moved up, you've moved over, you've moved out. And and now you're just adjusting one more time, you know, so that right. you can live as fully as possible. But we've we've always been here in the U.S. We've been so good about marketing fear to motivate yeah. people instead of marketing hope and in reality that you know life is all about adjustment. That's all it is. We're constantly changing and shifting and and moving things around. So. Um, this shouldn't be looked at as uh, necessarily an end-of-life issue. And um, it's really about good living and good practices with the, you know, powers of attorney, the health care directives, you know, planning retirement, all of those things. You know, we should go in with our eyes open. 
the possibility of getting ill. Chances are, you know, none of us are going to get out of here without being ill. I mean, that's pretty rare. Right. And, and, so, and life and, has 100% mortality, so you might yeah. as well figure out which path you're going on. Exactly. There's only exactly. one way out. Exactly. Yep. Um, are there some special things that, that care partners need to know um, up front that you feel yes. is kind of a hidden mystery? Yes, absolutely. The first thing is, and I know people hear this all the time, but I don't think it really registers. When you're on an airplane and the flight attendants are saying, in event of an emergency, put on your own oxygen mask first and then help those around you. There's a reason they say that. If you can't breathe and you pass out, you can't help anybody. And caregivers have to take care of their own health. And so that means they need to, we talked about the brain healthy habits of Enrich. Mm -hmm. A care partner needs that too. So that means they need to eat and exercise and make sure that they are dealing with any stress. And there are services available that if you can't leave your loved one alone, you can bring in a home health aide. You can bring in a friendly visitor. You can ask your friend if they can stay for an hour. But you've got to take care of yourself first. And that also means, and, and this is one of the uglier parts, and I even hate to say this, but it also means if you're caring for somebody who has one of the dementias and they are your power of attorney, you need to find somebody else. Very so true. Successor powers of attorney because there's nothing sadder than having one person not able to take care of themselves and then the second person gets ill and neither of them has the ability to sign a document. Yeah, so and, and it is not being selfish, it's being prudent. Well, in in part of it people can get into that whole thing in denial, even though they know they're being taxed to the gills and they're feeling exhausted, they're they're so not willing to work at that because they've made the other person's life such a priority over theirs. And yes. again, you know, you you can't give good care if you're not healthy yourself. You just can't. You can't give as good of care as as, as possible because you know, you're tired, you're frustrated, you're whatever it is. Um, but when your body is feeling strained, it will show. And the person with dementia, I don't care what stage they're in, they're going to read your nonverbals and they're going to know something's off and they're going to worry about you if they're able to state those words or not. Um, I, I've heard it so often from so many people with dementia going, you know, I'm worried about my caregiver. I'm worried about my care partner. You know, I, I know something's wrong, but they won't tell me. They don't want to upset me. But it's upsetting me even more not telling me because I know something's wrong. And, you know, yeah. they want to still try to be part of the solution or at least be in the loop, you know. Um, well, and, you know, and just out. because they have dementia doesn't mean they don't still love the person who's caring with for them. I mean, oh, it's, exactly. you know, it's you, you don't get stupid when you have dementia. It just means you're processing things differently. And they know. And, you know, one of the other issues is when the caregivers are reluctant to let go. And that is 
people wait too long to make care transitions. And you want to make those transitions while the person still has the ability to make new memories. How do they fall into a new pattern? How do they fall into a new routine? And I always I liken it to when we travel. And, Lori, I'm sure because you travel so much, I'm sure you've had this happen too, where you go into the new hotel room and you kind of make note of where the bathroom is and you fall asleep. And in the middle of the night, you have to go to the bathroom. And somewhere in the vestiges of your mind, you remember seeing it on the way in. And it's not necessarily where it is in your bedroom at home. Your brain has to be able to have learned that new memory Retain that memory and help you find the bathroom. And if you wait too long as a care partner to make a transition, to bring in somebody to the house to care, you know, assist in caregiving, to go to an assisted living or a memory care or a nursing home or whatever place it might be, a care home of any sort, you still need to be able to make a new memory to learn that process. And one of the things that breaks my heart is when I hear people say, well, he or she still knows me, so it must be too early for them to move. And that's just not true. You have to be able to have real screenings, real professional evaluations about when it's time to move and not be afraid to make a judgment and not be afraid to take an action because it can end up killing the carer and the person they're caring for. That's that's very true, and I, I see a lot of people wait too long. And, you know, you never know what that threshold is in, until you do it. And um, many people say, oh, I wish I would have done this easier be- or earlier because it's easier on me, too. Because uh, yep. some people might move out of their house and maybe they'll move into a community where they can live together, and then as things progress, then they can go to to memory care. Um, But Mm -hmm. it gets rid of that, oh, that burden of selling the house and downsizing, and they're able to do that together instead of of it all falling on on one person, person. even if if the person, you know, isn't fully capable of maybe covering some of the roles they used to, the care partner always says, I, I didn't feel alone in the process. And and that's a huge relief. The, yes, because there's, you know, in the cases where there's a couple, there's two of them involved. And and it's also, you're they already feel like they're losing control, right? So the plan this couple had for retirement, et cetera, usually doesn't involve one of them getting dementia and the other becoming a caregiver. And what I say to people is there are professionals who can take over the tasks for caring for someone else, bathing, dressing, toileting, transferring, feeding, the instrumental activities of daily living like bill paying and shopping and laundry. And, you know, all of that can be done by professionals. But the professionals cannot be that caring partner. You know, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a child, whether it's a sibling, none of us can have that role in a professional capacity. We can do the stuff, but what you want to do is avoid turning the care partner out of being a partner and into the caring stuff, Mm -hmm. the tasks, 
can't let the tasks take over and ruin the relationship. Yeah. I have something I talk about when I when I go speak and I call it <clears throat> the car e giver for caregiver and car stands for conscious relationship uh, or conscious awakening of relationship and e giver is about our emotional giving and letting people know that tasks are important but they can't drive us that's not why you're even in these positions typically especially for families to begin with you're in there because of a relationship, but so many, and I, I was included in that. I lost focus of my relationship because I thought the tasks were so important. And what I, what I learned through the process was some of those tasks didn't have to be done or I could give them to someone else. But as a care partner, I found them empowering to check off because when you're dealing with a chronic illness that has no cure, you're trying to find things to lift you up too. And and that was yes. totally unconscious on my part. Well, and, and I and didn't that's, even know that's that. That's a particular way to put it. And and what I always say is your loved one's not a checklist. And mm-hmm. laundry does not equal love. Yep. Yep. Well, I can't believe our time has gone so fast here. We've got about seven minutes left. What What would you like to talk about that we haven't discussed so far? Um, we'll definitely get um, information regarding your website and stuff um, at the end. But are there some other, other things in your book here that you'd like people to know? There's, like I said, there's just so much great information in here. And you've broken it down in a real easy fashion for for people to um, dissect and and swallow. Um, you know, it's written in, in friendly terms, which isn't always the case out there. I, I know some of it is really hard to to make palatable. Um, well, I will tell you, one of the sections we've added into the book was called "From the Other Side of the Bed," mm-hmm. and the reason we did that was. In the midst of writing the book, I had a stroke. And so my two co-authors are absolutely phenomenal. And one day the two of them called me up, and they were rather funny about it, as I was doing the tour of hospitals, nursing homes, and assisted livings. And they said, you know, we should probably add a chapter on stroke. And I went, huh, okay. So there is a section on other insults to the brain, things that aren't Alzheimer's but still have some of the same side effects. But the part I added was the patient perspective. And the reason I did that is I think that sometimes we lose sight of the person who is incapacitated still being a person. And we look at what are their vitals, did they take their medicine, did they eat? You know, they measure every bodily function, including Mm -hmm. did you go to the bathroom, what did you do and how much? But it's really important not to forget who we're dealing with, not just the what and not just the medical tasks. And so I'm hoping that those chapters actually add a little humanity to the book and that anybody who's dealing with anybody with dementia or any other chronic illness actually just tries to remember the humanity and steps back and has some fun because you really have to take fun where you find it. Well, and I think that that is so important, too, because a lot of times people get so serious. And I hear families say this all the time. Well, you know, we can't laugh. That that and it's just like laughter it is the best medicine. Laughter is kind of the core of, 
of typically the best relationships. And so you don't have to laugh at it, but you can laugh with. I mean, we all have goofy things that happen to us. And you just kind of, you got to, you know, maybe roll your eyes and giggle and, and push on, you know. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's funny. healthy. Yes, exactly. Some of it's plain old funny, you know. When when I was learning to walk again, I looked like, you know, a drunken two-year-old. And mm-hmm. I would laugh and go, okay, a toddler's better. How do they do it? And I would laugh <laughs> doing my best toddler imitation because otherwise it's really depressing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jody, this has just been so enlightening. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. I know how busy you are. Now, the website people can go to is brainhealthasyouage.com. That's brainhealthasyouage.com. And then you can also go to the other website, enrichvisits, that's plural.com, enrichvisits. I believe it's plural, isn't it, Jody? Yes. That's what I've got down here. Okay. Yep. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. And then you are also on Twitter. Uh, people can find you there, and I've got that listed on both the web page and the blog. Um, and then the book is available through Amazon, and it's also available at Barnes and Noble. And those, um, again, those are really easy to to find there. I just, um, I, I just think this is fantastic um, information. Now, if somebody wanted to contact you directly, can they get a hold of you through the website? Absolutely. We have a contact form right through the website, and it comes right onto my cell phone. So please okay. go right and you can find us. And the other thing is that on the Enrich Visits website, there are some um, virtual visit screening if you want some more personalized screening from Dr. Manspot's team. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate um, all you've shared with us today. And um, the copy of the book, I will be sharing this with my Memory Cafe members. I know that they will be interested in this as well. So you have a a blessed week. And again, listeners, please, uh, please like, click and share this so that more people can hear about Jody Lyons, and the book Brain Health As You Age. Thank so you. In, ra- in wrapping up, I am just going to, again, um, let you know that if you need more resources on Alzheimer's or dementia or uh, caregiving, please check out our main website, alzheimerspeaks.com. But don't be surprised if you go there and it says the site is down. Don't let it scare you. We're doing some regular maintenance, um, but I just haven't been able to figure out how to tweak the technology verbiage there. Should be up by tomorrow at the at the latest, but um, I always give it an extra day. You know how that goes. Thank you again so much and um, appreciate your time today. Bye now, everyone. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.